0: Now, little children, remain in him, that when he appears we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See how great a love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. For this cause, the world doesn't know us, because it didn't know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It is not yet revealed what we will be, but we know that when He is revealed, we will be like Him, for we will see Him just as He is. Everyone who has this hope set on Him purifies himself, even as He is pure. It's good to be with you today. I want to invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you have uh, Bibles or a phone app or anything like that, to 1 John chapter 2. We've been walking through this letter in the New Testament, just verse by verse, all summer long. And what's extra fun is uh, I've gotten some help from my friends to do this. Last week, uh, we heard from Mr. Derek Tice, which was awesome. Next week, we're going to hear from Mr. Derek Tice, again, which is going to be awesome. Uh, and then as we go along, we'll hear from several others. It's going to be a great series. But today, you got me. And today, the passage that we're looking at, that you just heard the, the nice British man that sounds like Ringo read, it's, a, it's, it's one that deals with one of the most important questions that we all face as followers of Jesus. And that is, how do we live in the tension of the already and the not yet? How do we trust Jesus? Trust in what he's done for us, what he's promised for us, even though we don't see the fullness of what he's promised for us. And that can, you know, apply to both to like grand escape theological questions, you know, that kind of thing, like what's going to be the end days and the end times and that kind of stuff. It can also apply to just what's going on in your life this week. How do we trust in Jesus this week, tomorrow, for the things that we know he's led us, he's leading us, but we just don't see it yet. So, if you have your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to dive right in to verse 28. We'll start there. He says, and now, dear children, don't you love how he just he keeps calling us dear children. This is such a this is, a, this is a cuddly pastor John is right here. Dear children, continue in him, that's Jesus, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his Coming now, a couple of thoughts right away. I'm going to just dive into uh, a few kind of key words. You know, we like to look at what what is the author saying in his language. He's speaking. He doesn't write in English. He writes in Greek. So we want to know what he's saying, and then we'll kind of we'll come back and look at what are some of the big themes uh, that apply to us. The first thing we want to look at is this word appears. This word appears is this Greek word phanerothe. Let me hear you say phanerothe. Phanerothe, its a lot of fun to say. Phanerothe is a very interesting word because uh, the its root word is this word "phos," which means light. It's where we get we, we might we get the word phosphorescent. So it's light, and so the the appearing is is that which exists, but for some reason it's enshrouded in darkness to us. And but the light will shine in such a way that what truly is will be revealed. It's like the lights come on. The lights are going to come on. And so for the writer here, there is this, there's this anticipation uh, when he appears, this, that human history is headed somewhere. That's where he's assuring us. There is this dynamic purpose, this trajectory we're headed. The story is going somewhere, and at some point, he will appear. The lights will come on. The second big word here is this word parousia. Parous, let me hear you say parousia. Uh, This is a very favorite word of John. He says it throughout this letter. He says it in the Gospel of John. Remember those are the same writers, the Gospel of John, these letters of John. Parasea usually gets translated confidence, but uh, scholars are generally united on the idea that there's no exact English equivalent. It's one of those kind of special words that, that's always fun to dig into. Parasea is a big, loud, buoyant word. It can also be translated boldness, uh, sometimes in the scriptures. Parasea conveys this idea uh, of our having access to God's presence and his, his favor without any fear. We can come boldly. It's, it's the courage and conviction that comes from, from knowing our relationship with God. So we can walk in this parousia. It's the word used in Acts chapter 4 where it says, now when they saw the boldness, the parousia of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men. These guys remember they were fishermen and they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So John says that when Christ appears, when the lights come on, we can have parousia, this bold, fearless confidence. Then he says, we can be confident and unashamed. Unashamed means that we can stand before God without any fear, without any guilt or regret or condemnation. Unashamed that we, it also means that we can be honest with God. We can be transparent and vulnerable with God. We don't need to hide who we are with God. We don't need to put on airs and act like we're something we're not because he knows everything anyway. We can be ourselves because God loves us just as we are. We can come to him unashamed. And John says then that all this is leading up to his coming. Now, the word coming here is a big word. It's the word parousia. Let me hear you say parousia. Back then, a parousia referred to when the king from the capital was coming to town, he would visit some village or a region um, in the king's kingdom. And the villagers, you know, would be getting everything ready. They would be cleaning the streets and making everything pretty, you know, painting the walls because the king is coming. It's like a royal <clears throat> official state visit, right? It'd be, it'd be like if Chuck Norris were going to come to Generations Church next week, right? We would want to make this place amazing looking. Just me. Okay, gotcha. Okay. So if you're reading this letter in the original language, these, these words are going to just jump out at you, phanerothe, wow, when he appears, the lights come on, parousia, parousia, sorry, parousia is confidence, but it's like a really deep, fully charged boldness, and then parousia, the idea that the king himself is coming to abide with us, so the first Christians lived with this hope that the world would not always be like this, that a king would appear, and that... He, He would, when he appears, he is going to make things right like a powerful king does. And John wants us to know that Jesus is not done with us. He's not done with this world. He has a plan and a purpose. Then we go to verse 29, chapter 2, verse 29. He says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Oh, this is so cool, friends. I mean, uh, back in the Gospel of John, We're told, the writer says, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Now he's saying that all of us who are in Christ, Jesus, we are all born of God, right? To be born of him means to have his nature, his identity. It means to have a whole new destiny before us. To be born of God means you and I are going to be made like Jesus. That's pretty cool stuff. Now, look at the next verse. Now, remember, there aren't any chapter divisions in John's letter, he didn't stop and say, okay, now guys, chapter three. That was added like a thousand years after this by like religious scribes. And I personally think this is a particularly dumb place to put a new chapter, but that's just me. Um, they, they just, they put it, they, this is right here because John is really just getting on a roll here, baby. He is, he's, he's on a roll. And he says this in, in verse one of chapter three. Now see what great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Now that see... In the original language, some of you, if you're reading along, some of yours might say what? Behold. Yeah, so that's a word you might see. Uh, This is a big, big word. It's an unusual word for John. It's an unusual, it has this grammatical tense uh, that it's kind of the ancient Greek equivalent of an all caps text that you send somebody like, check this out, right? Look at what this cat and this dog are doing together. It's amazing, you know. Okay, again, you can laugh today. It's fine. Um, Maybe I'm just not as funny as I think I am. Okay, So, so this is what he's saying. See, right? Do you see? It's this big neon lights. He's saying, do you see the great love that God has lavished on us, that he's bestowed on us? It's a love so great that we are children of God. Now, think about that for a moment. I know I'm talking fast, but think about that for a moment. The God who spoke the universe into being, who holds all of creation in his hand, just by his very word, calls you children. He calls you his child. He is all perfect and glorious and majestic, and he calls you, he is your heavenly father. He calls you his child. So he doesn't call you his slave. He doesn't call you his pet or even his like royal subject. He calls you, you're my son, you're my daughter. You're my boy, you're my girl. He loves you that much. God of the universe loves you that much much. He doesn't label you by your greatest sin. He doesn't go, you uh, liar, come here. <laughs> right. He doesn't, he doesn't label you by your greatest weakness, your biggest failure in your life. Nope. He says you're my child. Amen. And that is what we are, he says. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, that's a common theme in John's writings. Throughout his writings, uh, in the Gospel of John, we see over and over, people don't recognize Jesus. We've talked about that before. Like, they meet Jesus, they don't know who he is. They don't realize who's standing before them. They don't understand that the love of God has taken flesh and blood, and that the divine has, like, moved into the neighborhood. So one of these common themes of John is that God loves us this much, to come among us and rescue us, but not everybody recognizes this what it means to be a child of God. The systems around us don't, they don't understand the sort of unconditional love. This is an absolutely radical idea in John's day, that the divine was not fundamentally just some angry God just waiting to squash you like a bug. This was a radical idea for his day, that this was a God who loves unconditionally. A God who even a God who sent his only begotten son so that he could eventually have billions and billions of sons and daughters. Oh my goodness. Hmm. Pardon. All right, let's go to verse two. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. He uses this other word, this hamoye is this word. It means alike in nature, in properties. So, it, it, I mean, this is an amazing word. Similarity all the way through. And so there's this confidence. It isn't just that God is doing something in the world. Like, he is actually doing something in us that God is doing something like his, one of his great priorities is doing something inside you and inside me. Never forget that. Now, this idea that God is, uh, that we will be like God, that we will be like him, like Jesus, it's not a new idea. Uh, If you have your Bibles, look over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, John tells us that we're children, we're children of God, and there's going to be an appearing, there'll be revealing, the lights are going to turn on, and when we see just who He is fully, something's going to happen regarding us. And so the passage is about God, but it's also about us, and so <clears throat> we can have this great confidence that God is up to something in the world and it involves what God is doing, it involves what God is doing in us. Paul says this, this is the way he puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Saying so that we will reflect in all his fullness what God is like. And later in another letter to the Corinthians, <clears throat> Paul says this, he says we're gonna be like Christ in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, and we all... Who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So he says we're being transformed in his image. Transformed in his image. These writers, along with John, they had this abiding confidence that God is doing something in the world. He's not done with the world. He's doing something. And, and that you can have this confidence. In the love of God who calls us his children and that this God is working in such a way in some point that all will be revealed and we will be like Christ and we will be like him. So, <clears throat> but, but he says, he acknowledges what we are has not really yet been made known. What we will, what we will be has not been made known. What we will be has not been made known. Because here's the thing, we don't see it yet, right? Right? You know you. You know you better than anybody else here knows you. You know those things like, man, that, that thought I had, that was not very Christ-like, right? How many of those do we have a day? We know what we will be. We don't see it yet. What is that going to look like? Um, we don't experience it yet. So that's what it means for us to live in the now and the not yet. There's a tension there. I want to show you a, a little clip this is an artist, and he works in a really interesting way. Um, he paints using this, this unique technique to create his art. <clears throat> and if you were to just sit there and observe him, it would look like he's not doing anything, like he's just playing with a brush on the screen, and uh, on, his, on his canvas. But after brushing out the lines, he uses this liquid that's invisible. Then, later, he splashes these, these various colors of paint onto the canvas to reveal the image. Now, if you're just sitting there when he starts out, what is he painting? You have no idea. What is he doing? Why is he doing this and I don't see anything? I don't know. What is he doing? We have no idea. If he had a crowd just watching, nobody would have an idea. What is it going to be? What's he up to? We don't know. But we suspect that he does. We suspect that he knows where he's going with this, right? You suspect that he knows where he's going and he has something that he's, he's after. So he's in his studio working away. What exactly is it going to result in? We don't know. We don't know. But if you were familiar with this artist and you had seen some other things he had done, he could be going at it. And you don't see anything, but you'd be like, just wait, just wait, watch, just wait. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know what this is going to look like, but I know the artist. Come on. I know the artist. In this passage, John, what he essentially is saying is what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know the artist. And the artist is up to something. And whatever it is will be great. It'll be great. Think about uh, some of the great leaders throughout history. Leaders, you know, that we learn about in history books or even you see on the news that are revered and praised and these kind of leaders. There was something about many of these leaders who they, uh, they fostered confidence in their followers and in, in, even when the odds were stacked against them, some of them were presidents or kings or generals or military leaders, some of them were CEOs, you know, just there's something about these kind of guys. Like people get around them and they just have the ability to make people go like, all right, I'm in, you know, like I will follow you to the gates of hell and back. Like, we'll let's do it, you know. They, they're able to just engender this rare level of trust. People will say, I don't know the answer to this, but I, I trust this person and I will follow this person because I follow them. I will follow this person through hell and back. That is the kind of faith that John tells us we can have in Jesus. We can have that in Jesus because literally he has been to hell and back. Amen. And now he can lead us to victory. He lives today to lead us to victory. There's a, there's a story that I love from the Old Testament. It's just one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament that illustrates this trust, this sort of faith someone puts in someone else, even when the odds are really stacked against you. In the book of Judges, we've looked at this uh, before in, in a couple of years ago, I think. The, the Israelites were at war with their old enemies, the Canaanites, right? They're always at war with the Canaanites. and But now Israel, at this time, there was no king to lead them. They didn't have a big leader. Things were bad. They had been harassed by the Canaanites for like 40 years. They were outnumbered, outgunned, and the Canaanites had this powerful army, and it says that they had 900 chariots, 900 iron chariots. Now, that day, that's like having 900 stealth fighters and tanks, right, up against someone with bows and arrows. It was just, that was, that was the, you know, weapon of mass destruction of the day. And in the middle of this situation where they're outnumbered, uh, there arose this woman, a prophet named Deborah. Now, Deborah wasn't a war veteran. It doesn't say that she had any military experience, but what she was, was that she was a judge and she was a respected judge. And the people knew that she walked with God. They respected her. They respected her character. And so uh, God raises this woman up and Deborah summons one of her generals, uh, a man named Barak, and he, she summons and she says, God has commanded, uh, she tells him, God's commanded you to take 10,000 men into battle against the Canaanites with all their, you know, F-16s and tanks, you take your men into battle, 10,000 of them, and he's going to give you the victory. And uh, Barak agrees to the, under one condition. He says, you got to go with us because I don't know how it's going to work out, but I trust you, right? I know the artist here, and you go, and it'll work out. Even though he knows, it says that he knows that he won't get the honor and praise of defeating the enemy, it'll go to Deborah, a woman, which is a very big deal back then, right? So long story short, Deborah... Agrees and she helps lead the army, the Israelites, to just the other side of the river to where the Canaanites are, all their troops by the thousands. She gives the order to attack. And right then, a storm hits the valley and the river begins to to flood. And all of Sisera, he he was the uh, enemy general, all of his mighty chariots immediately get stuck in the mud. And Israelites just march through and completely rout them and Israel saved, and it's a wonderful story. But what I love about the story is that there's like this double layer of trust going on here. On the first layer, it's the faith that Barak has in Deborah. It's a beautiful thing based on her character and her wisdom. Uh, And make no mistake, that was a huge thing. You know, back in Iron Age, 1500 BC, for him to put that kind of faith, trust in a woman. This is is a pretty progressive dude, we could say. Um, He doesn't know how she's going to pull it off. He doesn't know what she's got cooked up in her mind, but he knows her. He trusts her. And when you read the story, though, you also get to witness a whole other layer of faith, and that is Deborah's faith in God. Her faith in God. You know, Deborah probably, like most leaders today, they probably, you know, in front of the troops exude a whole lot of confidence, like, yeah, I got all this. It's all going to work out, you know. But she was not a military genius or anything, so she was having to put her faith in God, God. I'm not really sure how you're going to do this. And she had no idea that there was going to be a storm come up, all this miraculous storm, you know, right when they, right when they attacked. But she trusted God's Word. She trusted His plan. She didn't let any doubts or fears or insecurities stop her from leading God's people just doing what He said. She didn't let the odds or the enemy intimidate her. She didn't let her gender or her experience limit her or define her. Amen? Amen. She trusted God in the here and now and in the not yet. She trusted God in the now and the not yet. She trusted that to the artist in charge, the canvas was already painted. She just needed to be a willing brush. Amen? I, I have, Guys, I've seen with my own eyes over the years that God will never fail to do something unexpected and surprising okay. if we'll just not freak out and run away. If we'll just trust Him. And I know that's easier said than done. Because when you're in it, all, it's easy to sit here and be like, yeah, woo. But when you're in it and you're kind of like, well, I really have no idea what to do next. If God says, don't freak out, just trust me, he comes through. He will come through. And this is what John is telling us in this letter. What will be has not yet been made known to us. But if we trust him, if we trust his plan, if we trust his love and his faithfulness, we will make it through. That is how we can live in the now, and the not yet. And then finally, John, he kind of ties this all up in this fascinating way uh, in verse three. This is our final verse uh, for our passage today. He says this, all who have this hope in him, all who have this hope, this kind of just trust, trust in the artist, all who have this do what? Purify themselves just as he is pure. John says, if we have this hope in Jesus, if we believe that he has made us children of God and that he will make us like himself, that the lights are going to come on and all will be revealed, that the author of your faith will complete what he started in you. If we have this hope, if we will remain, we are made pure. That's kind of crazy. Can you or I make ourselves pure? Can, can you achieve righteousness just through some good willpower? No, never. You can never achieve righteousness, no. It is only by the grace of God, the grace of Jesus, but it is through our faith. That's why the Bible says it's grace through faith. Right? It's through our faith that we cooperate with him, our trust in him. We cooperate with him. We align our will with him so that he can accomplish his work in us and make us more like him. We can trust him. In fact, that scripture I just talked about, grace through faith, it actually is grace through his faithfulness. It's his faithfulness. We're just trusting in his faithfulness, right? Now, I want to end by kind of going back to the very beginning and pointing out one thing about that first passage we looked at in verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him. That word continue is a beautiful word. It's this word meno. I think we've looked at it before. It's a word, again, John loves. He uses it 27 times in this this book. It occurs 40 times in the Gospel of John. And it means to abide. It's the word Jesus uses when he says abide in me. Just abide in me. Meno. Even has like a chill sound, right? Meno. Just meno, people. Just abide. It means to dwell or to stay it's this powerful idea and he begins this whole passage with just stay just just stay with the artist just continue just continue just continue now i often meet people who are deeply frustrated with with who they are at this moment in time uh, they have this particular hang up they have this addiction this this failure this weakness this particular way that keeps stumbling And there's this profound frustration with some of us, this longing of, I just wish I could be that person, right? I wish I could be like this person. I wish I could do that. And the writer here says, just continue with him. Just be patient. Just be patient. He's still painting. The artist is still working. You are literally a piece of work. (laughs) God says... You're going to be my masterpiece, but this is a work in progress. You're a piece of work, and he means it with all the love in the world. Just continue. What will be, what we will be, has not yet been made known, but he knows. And so this passage begins with Minnow. Continue. Continue. Is there anybody here today who needs to extend to themselves some patience, some grace? Because you are loved. You are a child of God. This God is a master artist. And and what you will be has not yet been made known. So just continue. Just abide. Stay there. Stay there. Secondly, I think what else is really interesting? Several scholars, as I was studying this out, have have point this out that John does not speculate here much uh, on what this parousia, what this coming of the king will be like. He doesn't really spend a whole lot of time there. He's, we know that when Christ appears, he mentions what will be, will be, what, will, what will be has not been made known. And other than that, we will see him. Other than that, you don't get a lot of detail. Uh, now, if you're like me, that's frustrating. <laughs> you don't get a lot of detail. And we, we want to stop right there and go, whoa, whoa, wait, hold up. What do you mean? Right? What, what will be, what is it going to look like? When is he coming? Because I thought it was going to be 2012 because the Mayan calendar was pretty specific about that. <laughs> and that didn't happen. So is it 2024? it going to be 2034? People want to know. And so we would love to have these sorts of details, right? And to know exactly where is history headed? How is this whole thing, you know, with like Russia and China and going to work out? You know, we have to know these things. That's what a modern American Christian wants to know. Give me a plan. Give me a timeline. I need like a Venn diagram or something, a spreadsheet. Give me something. But the, but the author here, the writer, all he does is just take this technical term about a, a state visit from a king, this Perusia, and that he will, he will appear, we will be like him. So just continue, just minnow, just abide in his love. And it's fascinating, as the scholars point out, John doesn't really speculate much about the future other than to say, you're going to be fine you're going to be fine. Remain in the present. Now, why is that? Uh, I came across this article. There was a writer named uh, John Shore. He wrote this article uh, that I just loved. He was, the article is about the frustration people uh, often have that God doesn't reveal more about the afterlife. And, you know, that's why we have so many arguments today about stuff. But he says this, if, while wandering around the inside of an art museum, I came across a door that's solidly locked shut. What do I do? Well, if I'm emotionally immature, I might wrestle with the door's handle. Or I maybe fall to the floor and try to peer beneath it. I might throw a tantrum because I can't get into that locked room. I might squat beside the door, fold my arms, and determinedly try to imagine everything inside the room. There are all kinds of ways I might waste my time outside the door. Don't you love this guy? But if mature... I will simply assume that those in charge of the museum know what they're doing and for whatever reason don't want people going in that room, and that would be good enough for me. So I would turn away from the door, forget about the room, and go back into the museum where all those wonderful works of art are waiting to enlighten and inspire me. Give it up for John Shore. That's that's good stuff. That's good writing right there. So the Apostle John acknowledges, yes, what will be has not been yet made known so, yeah, you can worry, and you can stress, and you can get yourself all tied up in knots about it all, you know, what's coming in terms of history, in terms of end times, and eschatology, and all that kind of stuff, and prophecy, but that door is locked. That door door's locked, right? And maybe it's God's way of kind of telling us to stop obsessing over locked doors, and just to, to enjoy what He's put on display, Right now, to trust him to reveal the rest when the time is right, right? And maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe you're not like preoccupied over uh, end times, like I get. Um, but maybe for you, it's just stressing over what's going on in your life right now, next week, next month. Maybe you stress about the future too much, about career and about money and kids and economy and politics and world affairs and all that kind of stuff. Maybe. It would be a good idea for just, we could use this phrase as a community when we, you know, when one of our friends here, we see them just stressing too much. Uh, We could just, you know, and they're going, what if, what if, I don't what's going to happen? I don't know, I don't understand what's going to happen. Maybe we could just lovingly say, hey, that door's locked. That door's locked. Now this room is filled with all sorts of beautiful art, all sorts of beautiful things. And for now though, that door's locked. Is there anybody here today who needs to be reminded that that particular door is locked, and locked for a reason, because Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Focus on today, the here and now, because this day is filled. Yes, it's filled with some some challenges, but it's also filled with all sorts of beautiful things to inspire and enlighten and teach us this day, right now. So we don't have to know exactly how it's all going to turn out. We don't have to know what the canvas is going to look like because we can trust the artist. Amen. Amen. Dear God, we come to you today. We thank you, Father God, for this kind of love that you give us. Lord, thank you for subverting all of our arguments and our, our logic and our reason, Lord God, with your love. Thank you for reminding us you are a master artist Lord, you make beautiful things out of the dust. You're making something beautiful out of us, and what we will be has not yet been made known to us. But we will know. We will know someday. We will know soon, and we can trust because we know the artist. We know the source. We know what you're like, God. We know that you are mercy and justice personified. You are beauty and joy and creativity personified. You are faithful. We can count on you, Lord God, and so we continue and we stay, and we abide, and we dwell there in you. Because your promises are true, your love is limitless, Lord God. Father, we pray all of this in the strong healing name of the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Well, I ask our prayer partners to come up today. If there's anything You do need prayer about anything that we can stand in faith with you, whether it's something in your health, something financial, a relational issue with a person, or if you just want to say yes to Jesus, maybe you feel, it could be for the first time or it might be, you know, you just feel like you've been far from God for a long time and today you you want to come back and get close to Jesus. You want to experience that intimacy with the God of the universe who loves you so much He calls you His children. This is a great day to do it. Come forward and let these good people pray with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and merciful to you in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace to you. Bye-bye.